I want you to open your Bibles once again to Luke chapter 5 and verse 10. We're just going to read the end of the verse. You know what it's going to say. We're talking about soul winners. Soul winners. People catchers. Winning people to Christ. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 10, at the end of that verse, it says, From henceforth, Peter, you shall catch men. Would you agree with me that that was a major thing in religion, that in Christianity, one of the major proponents is that we as people are left on this earth with a message for the lost. That God uses people to save people. And the world is full of lost people. Lost people are in darkness. God saves people and he calls them sons of light. And we carry light into dark places. If we don't, it doesn't get carried. If God only wanted to populate heaven, we would have been saved and taken to heaven. But he left us on this earth. Jesus' prayer in John 17 is that you would leave them here and keep them from evil. So we are here and we do have a message. Jesus said to Peter, this is the whole idea about why you're being saved. It's so you can catch men. And then in Proverbs 11:30, first part talks about trees of righteousness somewhat, so, somewhat, and it ends by saying, he that winneth souls is wise. And I think all of us would like to be noted in our lifetime as having wisdom and as qualifying in God's sight as being wise. Because the word wise means the right application of the knowledge of God. You think of that for just a moment. The right application of the knowledge of God. That if God said, this is the way walking in it, a wise man will do that. He that heareth the words of God, a wise man will hear it and know that if it came from God, it has to be so. That's the only right way to live. The word winneth has to do with of grasping or seizing something. And the picture that you get is he that winneth souls, first of all, knows that he's commissioned or she's commissioned to do that. That's why we're left on this earth, to witness and testify to a lost world of what God has done for us, done in us, and has shown us. Witnessing doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you know everything, doesn't mean you know as much as you should, but it means that you're willing to take what you have and share it with whoever the Lord brings you in front of. And it doesn't mean you witness to everybody because, I mean, there's a certain amount of wisdom in hearing from God. The Bible said we don't cast our pearl before swine. So there are instances that you walk away. And to know when those instances are is not something you can necessarily be taught. As you walk with the Lord, God gives you wisdom about how to hear his voice and how to do his bidding. But he that winneth souls is wise. Now, Jesus showed us something about that, and you don't have to turn to it. Matthew 7, remember the story about two houses? One house was built on sand, and one house was built on a rock. You remember that? Jesus said, a man who hears my words and keeps them. That is, a man who hears my word and does it. Is faithful. Is likened unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. 
And uh, the storms came, and of course the house stood because of its foundation. And a foolish man, on the other hand, is a man who hears the words of God, maybe likes to hear the words of God, enjoys hearing them, maybe hears them for years, loves to go places where the word is so eloquent or so, so good, but he does not live according to it. And the Bible said he's a foolish man. So a wise man, obviously, is a faithful man, a man who chooses as an act of his will not only to take God at his word as truth, but to live as though it's truth. Trusting God for the results that you have never seen before, counting on God to bring to pass what you're doing. It takes faith because it's all about faith. Without faith, he said, you can't even please God. I don't care where you go or what you're doing, you've got to count on God to do for you what he said he would do. Otherwise... You can't please God. So you can't talk about winning souls without talking about being faithful. Because if you're faithful, you're wise. And if you're wise, you do what God said. And to do what God says, well, are you in Luke's gospel? Look in chapter 24, towards the end of that chapter, and verse 45. Now this is a resurrected Christ who has come and appeared on this earth. And this is what he does. He said, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scripture. Wouldn't that be one absolutely marvelous thing? Well, did you know that's still available? That still happens? Think about it. Then Jesus opened their understanding, their comprehension, their grasping the bigger picture, the meaning of it all. What it's about, the very thing that affects your conscience and convicts you, that's what he opened up. And they saw it. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand what this scripture is all about. And then he said this. And then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it behooved or was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. That is the message and then he said this, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. That's what it's about. Now, we believe and obviously believe in personal holiness, in coming together and learning and letting God do a deeper work in us getting the details of who God is, his attributes, and letting the fullness of God begin to come in and do that deeper work in you. We call that a sanctifying work, that separating work in which he becomes a whole motivation of your life. This is what the message is. Jesus died and was raised from the dead so that men could be saved. Now, you're witness of these things, so you go out and proclaim that and when you see the conviction, remember, it's repentance and the remission of sins. This is what brings a man to Christ. He repents and his sins are removed. And lost people don't know that. If you ask the average lost person in the world today, maybe the average church member in a lot of churches, if you said, if you were to stand before Christ right now, 
And the door of heaven was right behind him. And he said, what on the basis of what should I allow you in heaven? Why should you be permitted to go to heaven? Most people would probably say, well, I've, I've been relatively good. I go to church. Everybody does something. It's not like anybody turned away from their sins that is so offensive to God. They just do things. They add a degree of their own goodness to their life. And they, they've helped people. They've donated money. or They can think of all the things that they have done. And for them, salvation is by works. Therefore, it's not really necessary to be a part of a church. It's not necessary that I go because church doesn't make me good. And so the logic of that kind of thinking is the kind of logic of a lot of unregenerate people. They're not bad people. They're not vile terrorists killing people and robbing and stealing. They're just people that have never come out of their darkness. Their idea of Christianity is that, uh, you know, if you live good and pay your taxes, I guess, and all of that kind of thing, uh, I suppose, then surely God will take you to heaven. Most everybody who's lost a loved one never, ever, hardly ever talks about that loved one being somewhere besides heaven. He's on that great golf course in heaven or he's fishing in the great sea of, uh, you know, because they, they were so good in the eyes of, of you that they could only go to heaven because heaven is only for good people. And when you begin to tell people, goodness won't get you to heaven. Being good and kind won't get you to heaven. If being good and kind will get you to heaven, there was no reason for Jesus to come to this earth. There was no reason for him to live the way he did, die the way he did, and there would be no really any reason for God raising him from the dead because you don't need it. All you need to do is be good. And so we're facing a world that is convinced it's okay. More and more in this cloudy time of life, when as Jesus prophesied, darkness was coming on the face of the earth, it'd be hard to see, and it is hard for people to see. You don't read or hear a lot about big revival meetings anymore. You hear a lot of big churches that are building and doing all of that, but you hear very little today about campaigns. Maybe in America you don't. I don't know about other countries. You hear more about anger and killing and terrorism and danger today than anything else. But there was a time, I guess, back in the middle of last century when I was born that uh, revivals were an, a yearly part of every church. Your summer had a revival meeting. And the whole purpose in the revival meeting was not really to add more members to your church because we need their donations. It really was about getting them saved, bringing them out of darkness into light. Those who are without hope and without God are bringing them salvation. And the way God has assigned us to do that is with the gospel. Now, we said last week in closing that our motivation for going out there and in the highways and byways of life and introducing people to Christ or trying to compel them to come in or sharing, just sharing how God saved you is enough. For some people, that's all it takes. The reason we do that is because if this happens, you begin to see that if you don't do something that a lot of people you love or you care about 
may never make it to heaven. They may die in their sins. And no matter what they preach at their funeral, you know they're lost. There's no way you can preach anybody out of sin into heaven after they died. It's over. It is appointed the man wants to die, and after this is a judgment. And everybody will have to stand before God. And so we're given this message of urgency, preach the word in season, out of season, be urgent, and go and tell people about Christ. And sometimes we, I mean, we think of witnessing as somebody armed with a, with a Bible with little tabs in it, ready to flip from, from Romans 3 to Romans 6 to Romans 5 and to other places and, and go through there. But sometimes it's just you sitting in a beauty salon talking to a neighbor about how God saved you. Just a careful little talk about, well, you know, I go to church all the time because there was a time I didn't, didn't think it mattered if I did or not. But when God saved me, it, boy, my life changed. And a lot of people never, ever had that happen. I'm not talking about bad, inferior people. Not at all. I'm just saying a lot of people have never had that happen. They've never been really born again. They've been religious. They've joined church like I did, maybe like you did. You're 12 years old, you ought to be baptized. Not that you repented of anything, but it's just, it's a, it's a thing. It's something you do. And then you try, we're told that you try to be good. All of our Sunday little sermons were about being goodness and kind and in that way serving God. And we didn't know much. Nobody told us much. Like God said, my people are destroyed because they don't have any knowledge. And a lot of preachers couldn't preach about it because they probably didn't know themselves. We come to the place where our motivation is that I must do this. I want to share with you, and, you, and if you want to argue or debate, hopefully I would like to think that all of you here have heard enough through the years that you're comfortable with your Bible talking to somebody about Christ. I would like to think that all of you would be. That if somebody you knew, a friend, not a stranger, but if a friend came up to you, maybe an uncle or an aunt, and they wanted you to, they said, tell me about your religion. Boy, that's great right there. This is your chance to say, well, it's not so much about religion as it is about relationship. And that's a good place to start. There was a time in my life, and you start talking about when you were lost. You give your testimony. You can quote the Bible along the way. That lets them know that you do know what you're talking about. I mean, you have studied to show yourself a proof, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word. That's why we study, not only to increase our personal relationship to God by being enlightened to who he is, but also to be informed with the word of God on how to answer the loss, how to share with them the gospel. All these things that God puts in our heart are for his purposes and his glory. Amen. And so... God wants us to be wise. He wants us to be caring. He wants us to be motivated. He wants us to be willing to go out into the highways and the byways of life. One person, I never heard of him, but he said this, he who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment but is forever foolish. So we can gain the world and have it this way and people admire us for that, but when we die... Without Christ, as Jesus told us, you have nothing. You have nothing except a, a terrible eternity to look at. So that's our message. 
You can gain the world and lose your soul and you've lost everything and you can't come back and redo it. You have one chance in life. You never know when it's gonna end because it is appointed to man once to die and that's it. So we have a message. Jesus Christ came into this world for us because we could not represent ourselves before God. We were sinners. We were offensive to God. There's no way we could save ourselves. There's nothing we could do. The law, his word, only proclaimed that we were sinners. It had no provision for the release from our sins. It was not there. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. We were all held under the power of sin. This is your message. It's a very simple message. And the only way for a man to be saved was for a man who qualified in the eyes of God to represent us before the throne. And the only one that could do that was Jesus Christ. He was God's lamb, the lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, God's offering for man's sin. And God only did that for a bunch of lost people because he loved us. And in Jesus representing us, going to the cross, dying in our stead, being raised to prove that this was a real deal, we now have offered to us eternal life. It's all on the basis of will you believe that and will you serve him? Maybe next week we'll talk about who really is one. He that went a souls is wise. When is a man really one? Is he one when he raised his hands or when he wept or when he cried? When is he really one? You need to know that too because that's part of your pressing in and mentoring somebody that you've led to the Lord. Now, tonight, how, how do we catch men or win souls? What, in what way has God provided for us to win men or to win souls, to catch men or to win souls? Well, the first and obvious way that God has given man to be a soul winner is words. God has chosen words. Let me read something from Spurgeon. Looking up the subject, soul winning, my, my. After a while of reading about various churches and various positions and everything, I'm not out there much like I used to be, but I've come to the, condition, to the conclusion that no matter what I preach, no matter what anybody in the world teaches or preaches, if Jesus taught it, somebody's against it. I couldn't believe how much everybody's against and, and, and not so much what they're for. It's just who's against something. But here's what Spurgeon said. I, I believe he was a man of God. I really do. And about so winning, he said this. Without fullness of life, there cannot be an overflow of life to others. It is of no use for any of you to try to be soul winners if you're not bearing fruit in your own lives. How can you serve the Lord with your lips if you do not serve him with your lives? How can you preach with your tongue his gospel when with hands and feet and hearts you're preaching the devil's gospel by your practical unholiness? We must first have life and bear personal fruit to the divine glory and then out of our example will spring the conversion of sinners. I agree with that. We could use this for two points. It's somewhat fruitless for us just to go out as a matter of a church function, as some kind of a little program that we've developed to go out and do our thing by witnessing or knocking on doors. If our life is not really willing, if you're not willing with your life to be an example of what you're testifying to, you know that. 
But it is easy in religion. It is easy to say one thing and do something else. But when you're going to start telling people about the Lord, you expect people to watch you. They're going to look at you to see if you really, if you really believe that. And they should. Because if you're going to, what's that song you say? Stand up, stand up for it. Remember that song? Well, the three or four of you that do remember this song about standing up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. He must not suffer loss. And then on and on. And so here we are. We're, we're little soldiers of the Lord. We're going out to do battle with, with darkness because there are those out there who want to prevent the gospel from being spread. We saw that with, in the book of Acts and those who oppose the gospel. So here we go armed with weapons and we have learned the truth about why Jesus died and was saved. That's our message. This is our message. And so we are armed with words and we go out there and we begin to share with words with your friends, your neighbors, perhaps even in some cases, your parents and especially with your children because they're old enough. They become old enough to know the Lord. And so you begin to preach to them too. This is who we are. This is what we do. If we don't do, do this, then how can anybody repent as a result of what you do? Your life has got to amount to more than just belonging to church. It doesn't take much to attend church. You don't bear fruit in attending church, I don't think. The seed can be planted there, but it has to germinate and then it has to come forth. It's like Spurgeon was said, you know, when you, when you are not bearing fruit to your personal holiness and your walk with the Lord, then you don't have much to say to somebody who knows your life because they hear you say it, but they don't really, really believe what you're saying. But God has given us words, words of life and words to preach. Remember he said in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be instant, be earnest. I don't mean have a lot of drama and put on a show. This is where your motivation comes from. Do you really care about this person's life? Do you really care about your neighbor, your mother, your father, your children, the person on the plane in the supermarket, wherever you are, the workplace? When the opportunity comes, be instant or be urgent, in season and out of season. And he said this, this goes, this goes with preaching the word, approve, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. But the time will come. The time will come in life and in history as we know it that men will no longer endure sound doctrine. There will come a time a hardness will creep into a person's life and it's fruitless to preach to them anymore. You can try because you don't know who has a hard heart and who doesn't. All you know is you're, you're compelled to share Christ. But there's a lot of people who have crossed the border. Bible even says that God can give you up. Remember that? God gave them up to their passions or their, in this case, if you hardness of heart, you don't want to hear it. Like in Romans 1, then God will let you go that way. But again, we don't know who, whose heart is hard any more than we know who's elect. So we preach the gospel to whoever. God's going to save people by the preaching of the word. That's how he's chosen 
to win the loss with the preaching of the word. And so that's, that's what we do. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5, he says, for us to do the work of an evangelist. Told this preacher that, but that would be true with us. He said, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. And the word evangel is the good news. An evangelist is a proclaimer of the good news. That's one who speaks and shares the good news. What's the good news? I told you a while ago. We were lost. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus was raised. Salvation is now given as an opportunity to those who will believe. Are you willing to repent and turn from your sin and receive forgiveness of sins? That's the opportunity. That's the message. But you can add more to it than that. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, Jesus said this. I know you know this. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. Now think of it. Here's Jesus and his mission on the earth in his very first sermon, quoting from Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. And he ends that verse with other things. He says, the doors of captivity and the, those that are bound released. And the end of that, he says, and to set the captives free. To set the captives free. That is to preach deliverance to the captives. Then we know this. This is a part of what we learn so that we can say, lost people are held captive by their sins. They can't get away from it. They can't get out of it. They can't, get, they can't give it up. Any, any more than a drunkard can just walk away from his liquor. He feels really bad about what he's done and about the effect it's having on his life. And when he tries to get away from it, he's just deluged with all of these temptations and lust. He can't escape it. He's been controlled by it for so many years. He goes back into it and he gets a little hardened against trying it again. And if a Christian doesn't come along in that man's life, and if God doesn't open that man's ears to receive a truth in a way that only God can give it, that man is doomed and lost. See, we have to count on God to open hearts up. No man can be saved just by preaching. God has to inspire the preaching that you make, your testimony, and he has to give grace to the hearers. When God gives grace to a hearer, he favors that person with understanding until a person says, you know, I've never heard that before. I need to hear that. And, and then you ask him, are you willing to admit that you are a sinner, that you need to be saved? Yeah, I am. Would you like to be saved now? Would you like to ask Jesus to save you? You believe God wants to do this. Are you willing to repent of your sins and turn away from them? I don't want you to feel bad right now and then go out tonight somewhere and get back in. Are you willing to turn away from your sins? If you're not, then don't do it. Don't try God. This has to become your life. Don't come forward. I remember thinking just briefly, I mean, a whole lot happened to me before I got saved, but I remember thinking, if you go forward, this is it. This is the big one. You can't turn back. And I remember something at that time that, you know, I'm not, I'm not ever going to look back. Well, you should say that, but a lot of people do. 
But you've got to be able to tell a person, look, you're going to, as that lady said that morning, I'll never forget that. The lady testified in our church that morning. In fact, when she said it, she was standing, I think, on this side a little bit. She said, if you'll take the first step this morning, God will be with you all the rest of your steps. That was when I come out of my pew and followed Bonnie down the front. If you'll take the first step, God will be with you all the rest of them. But you'll never take the first step until you realize that, that you're a sinner and only God can make that real to you. He uses us to tell it, but God is the one who makes it effective. Are you with me? I'm thinking of a person now, not somebody here, but somebody in this world that talking to them about the Lord would only, they'd probably get a wisecrack from them. If you told them about Jesus, they would probably say, well, did you get a good offering? <laughs> what kind of money you get for talking like that? Something like that, ha, ha, ha. They're hard. And so I would not even try, because I have once. I made a good hint at uh, getting a conversation started, and there was nothing but kind of <laughs> all of that. So that's about it. But God gives us words. All the years you've been sitting in this room or wherever you've been, all the time you spent reading about things and reading about people and their lives, this is information. This is stuff you've accessed, information you've come in, how God touched other people's lives. You've heard testimonies of how this one and how that one did this and did that. This is information. This is what you can use not only to talk to other people, but to relate to other people. I mean, God is giving us something to learn so that we have something to say. And, and as I say, we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us a reason of the hope that is within us. Romans ten sixteen says, how shall they preach except they be sent? Well, somebody said, well, I'm not sent. Well, actually you are. The Bible didn't say go ye into all the world and preach the gospel just to a few select few. If that's the case, then we're under no obligation to witness anybody. We hire people or people have to be a preacher to do that. But the fact of the matter is, we are all called to preach. If you would go to 1 Peter so we can go to our next point, but I want you to see this to me is necessary. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. This is a soul winner's verse. This has nothing to do with you just learning about something, but this it has to do with you learning something, becoming something, so you have something to share. But sanctify, set apart, separate in your heart as the purpose of life. My reason for being whatever I am is right here. It's Jesus Christ. To him, I owe my allegiance, my honor, my life, everything. The Bible says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And first of all, is a, a personal relationship that dominates your life, that is absolutely in control of your life by your consent. I want it like this. The revelation has been so strong, there can be no other way. This is what I want. So you commit yourself to this kind of a life to service. Sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. And he says, be ready always. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you 
a reason of the hope that is in you and do this with meekness and fear, not with some cocky, arrogant attitude. Yeah, I can tell you all about it. I know all about that. Meekness and fear, reverence. Meekness and regard for God. What do you do with meekness and reverence? You share your life. You share the story. Why you live the way you do? Why have you separate? Why are you so committed? Why, 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 why? Because somebody's going to ask you. God will make sure they ask you. I hope tomorrow that everybody, somebody comes to each one of us tomorrow and say, why are you so committed to the way you live? Because that's your signal. I could ask you tonight, why are you? If I ask you the question, why are you committed to the Lord? Why you live the way you live? Why are you so spiritual? Why do you go to church so much? Why do you spend so much time with churchy stuff? Why do you do that? You all. Right here, maybe you out there watching. See, the Bible says somebody's going to ask you that very question. Why do you believe the way you do? They used to say, why does your church believe that, that way? As though this church is is one conscience. Somebody once said to me, well, where, where are you going? I said, well, I know where I'm going. Where are you going? Where's this church going? You'll have to ask them. There's several people here. You have to ask them. I can't tell you where everybody's going. I know where I'm going. I know what I believe. I know where I belong. I know why I'm here. That I know. Everybody else, I can't speak for everybody else. I don't know. I assume. But I do know this. I know who saved me. I don't know why, except he loved me. And why he would love me, I don't know. But he did, and praise God for that. And I know what I'm supposed to do with it. I'm supposed to live it. I'm supposed to share it. For the revelation of God is like a light. It's like seeing something that you'd never seen. And when the light becomes a flame, everybody else can see it too. Not that they want it. Not that they want to get around you because you're kind of, you know, religious. But they cannot help but watch your life. They cannot help but pay attention to how you live. They notice you don't cuss and that you don't drink, and that you don't do a lot of things that ordinary people do. You're different. They don't know why you're different because they go to church and they're not like you. Finally, if nobody's around like Nicodemus at nighttime, you look around and see if none of their buddies are watching, they'll say, why do, you, why, do you all, why do you all live like you do? I mean, you know, you trust in the Lord and all that and faith stuff and doctors. They, that's, what they only, that's about the only thing they talk about. But why are you like that? Do you know why you are? I'm asking you because somebody's going to ask you, so I'm asking you tonight. Why do you live the way you live if you live the way you should that others would notice Christ in you? What are you going to tell people that, that ask you, you in here, young folks, older folks? We don't have any old people. What do you tell them? Well, I, uh, I, uh, what? What's I uh, mean? I, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I, yeah, uh, I, yeah, that's like a chant. Why are you committed to what you say you're committed to? Why do you go to church? 
Why do you attend meetings? Why do you give? Why do you fellowship? Why anything? Do you know why you do what you're doing? Do you know why you live the way you live? Or are you just little churchy robots? We just do a little thing. We go into church. We find our usual seats. Sit down. He says, now stand up and tell everybody you're glad they came. Shake a hand. And you go home. What's the purpose of why we live the way we live? Somebody's going to ask you that. Somebody's going to ask us all that somewhere down the road. How can you believe that, they'll say. Well, how can you? Y'all don't believe in going to doctors? Now, that's, that hadn't been true. But there is a sense of truth there that I would to God none of us would. That every one of us would receive divine healing. Bang. Wouldn't you? And have divine health, wouldn't you? Or they tell you, you know, what are you going to do when trouble comes? What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do? Well, what would you do? I'm asking you. I don't know. I don't know what any of you would do. I assume you would trust the Lord. I don't know that. So I'm asking you, what would you do? If somebody asks you a reason of your expectation, they obviously know you're, you're living in the expectation of something going to happen or some purpose you're on this earth and you're living in the expectation of either a reward for it or, or abundance or life or something. And so they ask you a reason of the hope that is within you. Why are you doing this? Why are you so different from everybody else? I'm asking you, why are you? Are we? Are we different? Are you different? As long as everybody else is different, I'm with them. No. <laughs> are you by choice, based on what you've heard, as a personal commitment, a conviction of your own heart, do you know why you believe what you believe? If somebody asks you a reason, they assume that you're some kind of a spiritual giant, and they say, how did you get this way? So I'm asking you, have you gotten that way? Somebody notices something, don't they? 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man, any man, that ask you a reason. Answer me why you have this hope in your heart. And do it with fear and meekness. And you might have this shoved in your face by some, you know, some bully. Don't bully back. A man of God must be meek. Woman of God. And so you share the gospel as God gave it to you. That's all you can do. That's all you've got. Your hope and your outlook and the joy that drives you daily, they see it. They see it. They cannot deny it. They can see that things are working for you. You're working well. It's going well. Remember back in the Christian church years ago, guy's first name was Jackie. Jackie had this big, robust little boy. I mean, he was a robust little fellow, and, and he was always ill, it seemed. And he asked us one time, and our little kids were all skinny. And he said, how come your kids are always healthy and mine's always sick? See, you have to be careful how you answer that, because you can say, well, I believe the gospel, man. What's the matter with you? No, I said, well, 
we just pray for him and we just trust the Lord that God will do that. He did make a promise. See the pro- and then he quoted it. See, the Bible says that, that he would remove all sickness from the midst of you. And so we just simply believe that. That's in the Bible to be believed. And it's not to be believed by unbelievers. It's for those who believe. This is a promise from God. So we, we just take it as a word from God and accept it and it works. Now, he'd never heard that. In the few casual moments in his life where he ventured into a church, and I guarantee he wasn't in a lot of them, he'd never heard that. He argued with me one time about he didn't believe his stuff about faith because if anybody was going to heal somebody, he would have healed his aunt and uncle because as far as he's concerned, God, God's goodness is towards those that try the hardest. God helps those that help themselves. I think Ben Franklin said that, but God helps those that help them. So that's what he believed. That was his philosophy. He had no expectation that anybody would ever ask him, what are you, God, where'd you get that? Why do you believe that way? Because he was as much in doubt and uncertainty as the rest of the world. It's when you're not like that that people say, what is it about you? What is it about you? Let me say it again. What is it about you? Are you like that? Am I looking at people whom the world would say, why are you folks the way you are? Would you cower and not tell them or would you tell them? See, the word cower in the Bible is used in Hebrews 10 as those who draw back. The word draw back is cower. The just shall live by faith. But if any man, remember that, if any man draw back, the word means to cower. Would we be embarrassed if we had to give an account for what we believe? Would you be embarrassed if in a crowd of people you were singled out and everybody got quiet to hear what you had to say? I mean, I'd like to think that's happened or going to happen to us. It happened to me when I was teaching school. But I didn't handle it well. I was kind of arrogant. I wasn't in much meekness about me then. But people are going to notice. Would they notice how you folks live? Will your neighbors know that you're different? Do your children know you're really the real deal? Do they know that? Do your children know that you as parents are the real deal? Are you the one they want to turn to when they need an honest answer because they trust your life and they know you're real? Are you like that? If they ask you a reason, Daddy, Mom, why are you like this? Are you like that? You must be to them. Can you tell them why you're like that? God uses words. And God uses words to save people. And we must be able to contend. Remember he said in Jude, we must be able to contend for the faith. We must study to show ourselves approved, as we said earlier. So God uses words to save people. Second thing that God uses is conduct. Not so much preaching, but the way you live. People haven't heard you say much, but they notice your life. And your life becomes an an example. Jesus said, you are the salt. Remember this in the Sermon on the Mount? You're the salt of the world. You're the light of the world. And he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That obviously means in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 15, it obviously means that in this world, We do good things. We do good works. That is things that God wants us to do. We turn the other cheek is something that we would do. 
We don't lie. We don't cheat. We answer honestly. We don't make people angry. Have you ever come to a traffic light too, too late that if you turned real quick, the guy, the person behind you would have to slam on the brakes and to spare them the moment and possibly the sin of saying a bad word, you just went on to the next exit? I do that a lot. Sometimes I'm not paying attention. Whoa, but I know that if I do this, stop real fast, people behind me are going to, and you know, if they do that, they're going to sin. Aren't they? Do you believe it's wrong to talk ugly? Then we don't want people to talk ugly, do we? Lest somebody would sin against God, we just go the other way. We just go down the next exit. We'll go the hard way so they can have the easy way. We'll give them the best seat. We'll take the worst seat. We'll park out there so they can park up front. It's like the other day at Kroger's. I had the front parking spot, the front one. You only need to walk across that little muddy spot there and then across the road and you're in Kroger's and I'm sitting here waiting. The lady's backing out that way and I'm waiting. Hi, how are you? And she's about to turn and here comes a, a big, fine and fancy BMW. Now, you can blow the horn and tell them you don't appreciate their rudeness or you can just go park in the back. I said, you know what? I need the exercise. I'll just park there. What if you hollered at somebody? Whoa. And then they showed up in church Sunday morning as visitor. <laughs> Pastor, I'd like to know what reason of hope it is that you have in your heart. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Lord, give us, give us grace. But in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter writes this. Having your conversation, that's just your manner of life, the way you live with its choices and motivations and all of that, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. It might be the day when God visits them that the reason they were visited is because they were touched by the way you live. They spoke against you as evil. They classified you as a cult. That would be evil speaking. They tried to make you out to be some weirdo. They tried to defame your name and, and, and make up stories, and they believed the rumors that people told them about you, and they repeated that as truth. So you're being slandered. You know, people can say whatever they want to say about us, slander us, anything they want to do. One thing they cannot make us do is act sinful. They have no power to make me a sinner. Being a sinner is something I must submit to myself. Sin has no right to me. I have to give right to sin. Sin lies at the door. Its desire is for me. That doesn't mean it gets me. It's desires for me. I must rule it. Remember that? Genesis 4, verse 8. You must rule sin. And so that even though people sin against you and sin against God when they sin against you, you have no right to react in like manner. We don't have that right to do that, and so we don't do it. And eventually, I think, with a lot of people, they're going to say, what is it about you? Why are you like that? Because they behold you're just and honorable and you're honest, upstanding life. Look at Philippians 2. Would you go back 
Turn back to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. God is working in you so that you'll live on his terms, the way he wants you to live. So do all things without murmuring and disputing. That's a good verse to teach your children. To teach them to memorize that. How many of you believe your children can memorize verses in the Bible? This would be a good one to teach them. Do all things without what? Then you don't have to tell them. What are you? I quit that. You can say, what does the Bible say in Philippians 2.15? Okay. Do all things without murmuring and disputing that, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Listen, I don't know how I've personally escaped the reality and the deepness of stuff like this for so many years, but this is the major point in the Scripture in the New Testament. Yes, we learn. Yes, we grow. But we are commissioned to proclaim. Are you here? The reason we live right is so people will see right. The reason we study is so people can hear right. We're, on this, we're in this earth as God's mouthpieces. God saves people with people. He sends people to proclaim his work. And God, by the hearing of the word, causes salvation to come when they believe it. We're ambassadors, we're sojourners, and we're the mouthpiece of God in, in this world. So our life, our life is like a shining light. We are to live that others may see our good works and glorify God. They have to take note at some point in this earth, even those that probably hate you, they have to take note that you really have been with God and that your heart really is right. You put up with a lot of junk in this world and you, all you can do back is smile. There's got to be something right about you. Or that person's life is always peaceful. And we know about people like that. They're always happy. They're peaceful. They never get tore up about anything. It's like they found something that is beyond the, the world's grasp. The world can learn about it. They think if they hit the lottery or they get a big one or they win a big settlement or something comes their way, they get the big job, then they'll have, they never have peace like that. But the one thing the world cannot escape seeing in any of us is peace. Freedom from agitation. Freedom from murmuring and complaining and griping about politics, about the world, and this ain't right. And hey, I'll tell you one thing, blah, 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 blah. Because the world's full of that. And when you're not like that, when they want a response from you, tell you what i do, what would you do? Well, you just say, well... And as much as you ask, I'd probably, I'd, I'd probably pray for him. What? What's that got to do with anything? Well, you asked me what I'd do. That's what I'd do, pray. You see, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm called to do. Watch and say pray. Pray. Watch and pray. Be sober, be vigilant. Look around. Look at all the things that you can't do anything about personally. Nobody will ever see your life. But you can pray. I'm not saying that as a point that evangelism happens because we pray, but I certainly think that'd be a good, a good point to make. 
by prayer. Things that bother us, things we're interested in, things we're so desperate about, you pray. Your parents, your children, your loved ones, church, people in the church, our needs, we pray. God, move amongst us. And a third thing about how God saves is through our compassions. Through our compassions. I'm going to read for you a verse in Psalms 126. Psalms 126 and verse 6. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again, rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I would imagine you would agree that weeping has to do with compassion, emotion. Would you agree with me that a person who weepeth is an emotional person? I mean, somebody who is driven by some passion that they're having trouble experiencing or seeing the fulfillment of, and they want it so bad that before God, it's like pleading with God. It's a compassion. It's something there's not a lot of in Christianity, but there is some. There are people that do this. Maybe we don't know who they are so much, but there are people that do. They have, they have this reason for praying and pleading with the Lord for lost souls and, and desiring that even God would use me and take me somewhere to show me your way and so forth. Listen to this. The anger of God. The anger of God endureth for a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. So he that goeth forth and weepeth will be rewarding, be rewarded, because God, if the desire of your heart is to see people saved, God will bring people to you that you can lead to Christ. It, it sometimes it just depends on how badly you want to do this. If you're afraid to do it, if you're embarrassed by doing it, chances are not very few people will ever come around and ask you a reason of anything about you. There's a kind of hunger we lack here in this church, this assembly, not anywhere else. But there's a kind of hunger that we lack here. There's a kind of a spiritual desire that we lack here that we haven't seen much fruit from. It's like a seed that we're aware of that never really got underground so that it could germinate. It's like... I know this should be going on. I know it should be doing that we should be doing it. I still remember years ago when we got away from knocking on doors and the joy of, of praying for the lost and got into just studying the Greek and the Hebrew and, and seeing how much the verse, you know, and getting and got into teaching. There's nothing wrong with that. Because again, part of soul winning is being taught. But then it kind of left the soul winning part out. Quit picking up the hitchhikers and all of that. We used to pick them up for one reason, to witness to them. But it's hard to pick up a hitchhiker with three guys in the car, all of them talking at once. But that was a the difference. There was just this desire to be used of the Lord to bring information to some lost person about Jesus Christ and why he is a great need of their life and why they should turn from their sins and repent we used to pray for open doors, that God would give us a chance, an opportunity. We pray that. I wonder when the last time we here have prayed such a prayer as a church, or when the last time you individually 
prayed such a prayer for yourself that God would give you another give you an opportunity to witness. I don't mean you have to get in a pulpit and preach. Very few people will ever do this. Compared to the people in the world, very, very few people will ever be in a pulpit. Very, very few. Little bitty microscopic few. I mean, one church of 500 people has a preacher. That's one out of 500. So it's just very few people ever preach. But we're all preachers. We all have a word to share. And to share a word is to proclaim a truth that has changed your life. And sometimes we want that so desperately bad that we... We get down and pray for it. And then, fourthly, tonight, turn to Psalm 40. Another thing that God uses to bring the lost to him, to witness and to win people to Christ, is praise and worship. Praise and worship. I don't remember the date or the time I remember the place and the church. I was in Paducah, Kentucky in a Lutheran church. We had a three-day youth meeting. It was in the uh, early 70s, 115 years ago, last century. And the church was full uh, of young people. There must have been 300 of them. They're just full of them. As typical as it was in those days. They were very lively. There wasn't any of this quiet stuff. There wasn't any folding of the arm. It was robust singing by just about everybody. It was so noisy. I mean, it was just, you know, any song you sang, they, if they didn't know the words, they'd just mumble words. They just wanted to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And the next day, we, then we, we came to the end part of the service where we were singing, and, and uh, it, it's sort of like when the Spirit of God began to move down on top of that joyful sound, and we started singing in the Spirit. You know, it's like the sound of many waters the Bible speaks of. We're not saying any specific words, but it all blends together. Everything was in harmony. Well, it was good. And guy came up after service was over a fellow looked like he had been standing in the sun all his life real leather beaten and had tears running down his dark cheeks he said a few words and he said can I talk to you tomorrow and I said yeah and so he left and I went over to preacher's place the next day to talk to him and he said I have been searching for truth about God all my life he said I've never found it anywhere and I've been to a lot of churches I finally gave it up forsook it all, and he said, I went to the sea. I've been on the sea, and he mentioned how many years he'd been a, around the world as a seaman. And he said, I was home, coming home to say, apparently he's going to end his life. And he came home to see his family again in Paducah there. He said good, goodbye to him. And he said, I don't know what that happened at the end of that service last night, but there was that time you started singing, and the Lord God, whom I'd never met, his words where he just came down and got all over me, whatever that means. You know, I, I couldn't tell you that God comes down and gets all over you, but that's the only way he could describe it. That in his miserable and wretched, lonely life, all the things he'd try to do to find something in life, he found nothing but misery. Because every, every good day turned into a bad day. 
Never promise turned into futility. And what's the use of living? So he came to church one night, of all things in a youth meeting. Never been saved. And we were singing in the spirit. It was really good. This was, this was a time, not much of this anymore anywhere, but oh. It's just you got caught up, we would call it. You got caught up. And he did too. But he wasn't singing, but he was in the midst of it. And so God got all over him and just came down where he was. And he asked the Lord that day to save him. I said, would you like to repent and be saved this morning? He said, I would. I really want this more than anything. I said, well, God brought you here to save you. And he prayed for the man. And he started crying and weeping, which is a pretty good sign. Not always, but it usually is a good sign. A man's heart is broken because of his sin. And there's a spiritual gladness because God has received you. God has accepted you. You, you receive him, but he accepts you. And this man, after all these years, hard years of his life, found Jesus. I don't know, whatever happened to him, I never heard from him again, I never saw him again. But I remember that story about that seaman that came to that Lutheran church that one night. It reminds me of this psalm, Psalms 40 and verse 2. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me, and he heard my cry. Now, this is what he did, and this is what God does. And we're talking about the effect of praise and worship on the lost. He brought me up also out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Has he done that to you? Has he done that to you? Are you sure? Are you sure? Because this is what he said. Now listen. Verse 3, and... He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Did your Bible say that? Well, let me ask you a question, class, before we close. Then why is it, according to the scripture, that many will trust in the Lord? Doesn't say anything about hearing anybody preach, does it? What did, why did these people trust the Lord? Because they saw something. They saw something. Worship. Are you like that? Did God give you a new song? How about a new song? Singing to the Lord. Has he given you that? See, songs, songs can be the product of, of sadness. There's a lot of sad songs, most of these old country songs about something like that. But songs also are the reason for joy and praise, or joy and praise are the reason for songs. I sing because I'm happy. Remember that song? I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches you and me. That's why we sing. Think of all the hymns that you've heard, if you were ever in church, about singing. 
But sing them over again to me. What? Wonderful words. See, there's a bit of emotion in that. Wonderful words of life. No wonder we raise our hands. It seemed like your pockets weren't made for Christian meeting. You just sort of raise your hands like, yes. They do it in parades, don't they? Why is it a ball game? Even dignified scholarly professors at ball games when I was in college, some of them. We'd win a game, they go, yeah, they do. Why do they do that? They do that. They do that. You know why? Because they're happy. They're happy and they're glad. They've got good, useful bits of information. They just had an experience that it, it, the experience is worth exuberance. To be glad of heart. To be full of joy is to express it. And the Bible said a lot of dead and dull people may come to church. A lot of people waited with the worries and the cares and the uncertainties of this world and their tomorrows. They may come to church some night and there you are just joyful. And it rubs off. It becomes contagious. And God uses that joy to affect other people. There's a reason we rejoice. If it wasn't important, we wouldn't do it. If music wasn't important, they wouldn't have sang 24 hours a day at the temple. David appointed singers in shifts. 24 hours a day, there was music and singing at the temple, constant. They sang. One whole section of the Levitical tribe were musicians. That's all they did. They, in that way, served God. God likes music. If it is his music. God does not like boogie-woogie, rock and roll. They don't like that. God likes the kind of music that glorifies Jesus Christ. I don't know about, oh, come, come, come to the little church in the wildwood. There ain't much of Jesus to that. I mean, I'd rather have a song about Jesus than a little church in the wildwood. Now, if that's your favorite song, I'll repent tomorrow, okay? But the fields are white unto harvest. The only ones that God has chosen to send to those fields is us. And we're the only ones that can go and nobody can go for us. Nobody can take our place. We can't pay anybody to do this for us. You can't pay me to do it for you. None of that is Christian. We are doing it because it is in our heart to do it as something that God has called us to do. It's the great commission to go out and preach everywhere that men should repent and turn away from their sins and turn to Christ. That's our message. Next week, I want to ask you the question and begin examining for a couple weeks, maybe. If he that winneth souls is wise, when can we say a soul is one? Don't we all know of a lot of people that said the right words, had a moment, but disappeared? Well, they weren't one. When is a soul one? This is a part of the gospel. It's been left out by a lot of people, but I hope we don't leave it out. Amen. Bow your head. Father, in Jesus' name, we give you thanks tonight for the truth that you've sent to set us free. 
a truth that equips us, prepares us, enables us. I ask you to help us with all the power that you have that we go out and not only do the works that Jesus did for those places where that is so needed, but also to perform the greater thing. I ask you to bless your word to each of us as little evangelists, all of us carriers of the word that we might with passion and with a sense of duty and responsibility to you share the gospel. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.